Please remain standing for our gospel lesson and also our sermon text from Luke chapter 7. This is the gospel of God, beginning in verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And in that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not, greater, not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for our justification in Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray that you would impress your word and uh, our faith in him on our hearts as we study it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, please be seated. Advent, these four weeks in December leading up to Christmas, is a time of preparation and a time of expectation. A time in which the first coming of the Son of God into humanity, into human history, is remembered, and in which we look forward to Christ's second coming at the end of time, the restoration of all things, the new heaven and the new earth. We look back not only at the first Christmas every year when we celebrate Christmas, but we also look forward to Jesus coming again. It is a time for us to prepare our hearts and our lives for the coming of the Lord. And we, we do all sorts of things in expectation for Christmas, to celebrate Christmas. 
I told the, the kids at the co-op this week more by way of confession than anything else that at our house we have no less than three Advent calendars running right now. We have, we have our original one and we have two that were given to us as gifts, but if you want to know the date in December, just ask someone in the Kazansky household. The, the sense of anticipation for Christmas is great. And I know a lot of you are doing uh, other things in expectation for Christmas, setting up trees and putting out decorations, uh, buying and wrapping gifts. We do a lot of things as we get ready for the coming of the Lord and celebrating His coming. Our gospel lesson today is also about expectations. In fact, it's, it's organized around three sets of expectations. John needs to be reassured that his expectations concerning Jesus are correct. That's the first set of expectations. The second one is Jesus questions the crowds, the crowd about their expectations for John. And then finally, Jesus addresses the Pharisees' expectations concerning the kingdom. And so the questions that are, that are jarring everyone's expectation in this passage, really is, can Jesus be the Messiah? Can Jesus be the long-awaited one, given everything that's happening? When Jesus coming upset everyone's expectations. So, three sets, but as we progress through the passage today, I think you'll see that all of them concern the identity of Jesus and the coming of His kingdom. The identity of Jesus, the coming of his kingdom, which are the very things that we look forward to celebrating every year during Advent. So this passage has a lot to teach us about our Advent expectations for the Lord. Let's begin in verse 18 with John's expectations of the Christ. So it says that John has sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask a question. And, and Luke doesn't tell us explicitly but we know from other gospel passages that the reason that John is sending messengers, disciples, is because John is in prison. John has just completed a very fruitful ministry, preaching on the banks of the Jordan, calling people to repentance into a baptism, and proclaiming that the long-awaited Messiah that the Jews were expecting for many, many years was about to appear. He said, the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord is about to visit his people. Repent, be baptized, live new lives, prepare because the Lord is coming. And, and John's preaching ministry out at the Jordan was, was phenomenally fruitful, very, very effective. Great crowds came out to hear him. And many tax collectors and sinners and centurions were baptized by him, confessed their sins, and they all began to live new lives in anticipation and John was able one day on the banks of the Jordan even to point the crowds to Jesus specifically and say, Behold, the Lamb of God, the long-awaited Messiah, was here. You can see the, the sense of, of excitement for the crowds. Jesus, the Messiah, is here and He is beginning His ministry. But as John continued to preach repentance, he ran afoul of Herod the regional ruler. He rebuked him for taking his brother Philip's wife, and Herod had him thrown in prison. So as we open the passage today, John is sitting in prison in a desert fortress, and so he grabs two of his disciples 
and sends them to Jesus with a question, beginning in verse 19. John, calling two of his disciples, sent him to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, that is Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When we read this question, we might be surprised that John would be someone who would ask it. John had a powerful ministry proclaiming that Christ was coming. He even pointed out Jesus saying, there, there's the Christ, there's the Lamb of God. Why is John asking this question? Let me think about it just a little bit more. If we were to turn back and read through chapter 3 about John's preaching about the coming of the Christ. As he preached, he told the crowds, as when the Christ comes, you need to flee from the wrath to come. He tells them in chapter 3, verse 7. That the axe is already at the root of the tree, he says in chapter 3, verse 9. He said, when the Christ comes, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, he says in chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus himself had, had proclaimed that his ministry was a, a setting free of, a, of the captives, a liberty to those who were oppressed. So John, as he hears about what his disciples are telling him about Jesus' ministry, about Jesus' preaching, the Sermon on the Mount, good news, about Jesus' healings and the miracles that he's performing, some of those things really resonate with the preaching that John had done. But John is probably sitting there in prison thinking to himself, well, where is the fire? Where is the judgment? Where is the winnowing fan? Is, is Jesus not going to be chopping anything down? Je- Jesus is out healing uh, centurion servants and, and raising the dead, but John is still sitting in prison, and Herod and Herodias are still in power. The Pharisees are, are just as arrogant and self-righteous as they have always been. He's probably thinking to himself, where... What about, what about this liberty to the captives things that Jesus was talking about? That sounds pretty nice as he sits in the prison wondering, are my circumstances going to change now that the Christ has come? We might say that Jesus wasn't meeting John's eschatological expectations. In other words, John was a bit confused about the timing of it all. He knew Isaiah, he knew the Old Testament prophets, and like the Old Testament prophets before him, he preached a message, yes, when the Christ comes, of great joy and deliverance, but also a terrible day of wrath and judgment. And John was not able, in his mind, as he sits in prison and he hears about the miracles of Jesus, and he hears about the teachings of Jesus, that blessed are the hungry, that blessed are the poor, that blessed are those who are reviled and persecuted. Something about the timing of it all just quite isn't adding up for John. The Christ had come. And so where, where was all the judgment that John had proclaimed? Where was all the judgment that the Old Testament prophets had proclaimed? And so he sends the messengers and asks them, 
to ask Jesus, are, are you really the coming one? Or should we look for another? And I think from time to time that we can all relate to John in this question. Can't we? I mean, we, we live in a time of much greater spiritual light than John had. But we can still get confused about the timing of it all, especially as it pertains to the circumstances in our particular life. We, we start to ask this kind of question when we haven't received this blessing or that one yet. There's, there's a promise that God has given that we, are, that we are waiting on, that we see in the scriptures, and yet it hasn't come to fulfillment in our lives. And and we start to get anxious. We start, the doubts begin to cloud our minds. When it seems like the wicked are in power year after year after year in our country and in around the world, when you're isolated socially, at that point, we are all tempted to want something a bit more dramatic than the preaching of the word and works of mercy, which is exactly what Jesus was out doing. It just doesn't seem to fit the situation. It doesn't seem to fit what we need. That is the point where we all want to ask Jesus, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? And we will all experience times like John's, even spiritual giants like John, who was a great prophet and, and had a phenomenal ministry pointed to Christ, we will all experience those times. So what, you, what do you do when you are imprisoned? Maybe not in a desert fortress like John, but in, in Doubter's Castle, like, like Christian in John Bunyan's spiritual classic, Pilgrim's Progress. He devotes an entire episode to, to the protagonist being locked up in Doubter's Castle. And when the questions crowd your mind, what should you do? You should do exactly what John did. Send to the Lord with your questions. Send to the Lord and go to Him in prayer. Ask your questions of the Lord without accusation and lay out His promises before Him. The Psalms teach us to pray this way. How many Psalms do you know begin? How long, O Lord? Will you forget us forever? Will you be angry to all generations? When will your kingdom come in its fullness? It's, it's not faithless to pray this way. Incidentally, John's, prayers, uh, John's prayer, his question to Jesus, is not faithless or accusatory either. You'll notice in, in asking Jesus about his identity, John's really asking about himself. He's not accusing Jesus of doing wrong. He's saying, are you the coming one? In other words, he's asking Jesus, was I mistaken? Was I wrong? Did I get the timeline off? The doubts crowd your mind. Go to the Lord in prayer. Use the Psalms specifically. They'll give you words to pray to the Lord. But don't do it in an accusatory way. But lay it out for Him. Show Him His promises and say, Lord, when will you fulfill this promise in my life? When will you bring your kingdom to come in, in a way that I can experience it? I trust you. Go to the Lord in prayer. If you do, you will find that Jesus' response to you will be gracious, just as it was to John. Look at Jesus' response in verse 21. 
He says, in that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking wick he will not quench. The Lord is gracious with your weak faith. He is gracious with your questions, just like he was with John. Jesus sent back to John overwhelming empirical and scriptural evidence that he was indeed the Messiah. He confirms John's message to the people that Jesus was the Messiah. He responded by doing miracles. Not pointing to the miracles he had done in the past, but, but he provided a new ministry, new miracles right there for the disciples. He, he cured many who were ill. He gave sight back to the blind. The lepers were cleansed. The lame walked. And Jesus' message that he sends back to John is basically a collection of texts from the prophet Isaiah that say, look, the, the works that I am doing right now, these works of ministry, the, this message that I'm preaching to people is exactly what Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would be like. So he's, he's showing him in deeds and he's pointing them to him in Scripture that Jesus was indeed fulfilling all the expectations of the Messiah. And yet, Jesus did not answer John and gave him no explanation as to why the fiery judgment that John expected had been withheld. And he gave him no indication whether or not John would leave that prison. And we know from the rest of Scripture that John would not leave that dungeon. Herod would later have John beheaded right then, or right there. But Jesus does give him his person and works and his scriptures to comfort him in his questions. Today the Lord can and does give you the same thing. As you wonder, when will God's kingdom come in its fullness in my life? When will the promises that I read about come to fulfillment for me, when I can experience them, can I trust God with my doubts, with my questions, with my difficulties? Look to the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf and all of his promises in the scriptures that he has fulfilled. This is what Jesus gives you in our, in our doubts and in our questions. Jesus told John, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, and there at the very end of the list, in the emphatic position, he says, the poor have the good news preached to them. I think if we were talking to John, we would be tempted to put the dead are raised in that last spot, the most important spot. You want to offer proof that Jesus is, is who he says he is. He's the Messiah. Well, look, he has control over life and death. Dead people are coming back to life. I think I would be tempted to put that there. But no, Jesus says, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Any attempt to understand the ministry of Jesus that leaves out the preaching of the good news to the poor will never recognize the wonder of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus in fact, said that this was the very thing that he had come to do. If we, if we turn back just a few chapters 
in Luke chapter 5, after Jesus has a night of healing many sick um, and casting out many demons, and, and the disciples are very excited about it, and Jesus uh, the next day says, okay, I'm, I'm going to move on to the next town. And the disciples are saying, no, we, why, why would you leave? Look, there's crowds right here, and all the people are coming to you. And he says, I have to go to the other towns to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he says, for this reason... I came to herald the good news of the forgiveness of sins to the poor. Not necessarily the financially poor. I mean, even if we just look here in chapter 7, Jesus heals the centurion's servant. The centurion is, is a very wealthy and powerful man, and yet he's a recipient of the ministry of Jesus, of the good news, but the poor in spirit. Those who know that they have needs that God alone can meet. This, is, this, in fact, is what all of the miracles that Jesus does in his ministry are actually pointing to. That's why Jesus goes on to, to preach in other places after healing. Because the miracles are supposed to point to the deeper reality of what he came to do. You remember when the... When Jesus heals the paralytic that's, that's let down through the roof. As Jesus is preaching, a, a, group bring, a group of friends bring their friend, their paralyzed friend, to hear Jesus preach. And they let him down through the roof. And Jesus says to the man, Sons, Son, your sins are forgiven. And everyone starts to, the Pharisees start to question, how can he say that? Only God can forgive sins. And, and what, is he, what is he doing? Remember what Jesus says. He says, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say to the man, that your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk? And he says, So that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And the man was healed. All of the miracles that Jesus did point to the greater work that he came to do to forgive our sins and to restore us to God. We were blinded by our hatred of God and one another. We were unclean through our leprous and filthy actions. We were once dead in trespasses and sins, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians. We were bound by Satan and taken captive to do his will. It's when you come to the point of knowing that you need God and God alone can forgive you and restore yourself to him that the good news comes. And Jesus came and he did his miracles, yes, but they were pointing ultimately to the deeper reality that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. So Jesus raised the dead to show us that yes, he can forgive sins. Yes, he can restore you to a right relationship with God. And that's exactly what he did by taking your sins upon himself and taking them to the cross and dying on that cross with those sins and being buried so that he could leave them there in the ground, in the grave, in death, and rise from the dead so that you too might rise from the dead and have newness of life. 
It's the message that Jesus sent back to John the Baptist. And he adds this beatitude at the end. Verse 23. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. We're not to be offended by Jesus. Taken aback by the unusual nature of his ministry. Jesus does care about our physical ailments. And he does care about righteousness in the earth. But he has deeper work to do. And the time, the fulfillment of all of these things rests with him. That's John's expectations of the Christ. And Jesus reassures him, yes, I am the Christ. And I have come to bring the kingdom. In the next section, we see the crowd's expectations of John. Look with me at verse 24. It says, When the messengers of John had departed, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. As Jesus asks these questions of the crowd, did you go to see a reed? Did you go to see someone dressed up really nice? Those are obviously rhetorical questions. The answer is no. They did not go out into the wilderness, in other words, to see someone easily swayed by human opinion or connected to the halls of political power. John was not that way. John was a stern man, a hard man, an ascetic. He was unflinching in his preaching, even to Herod. John was willing to go to prison for the message that God had given him. Instead, Jesus reminds him that the people went out to see a prophet. In fact, he says they went out to see more than a prophet. John is the one that Malachi that reference there that's from the book of Malachi, prophesied about. He was the Elijah to come, the one who would prepare the way for the Christ, prepare God's people for the Christ, and actually get to see him in person. All of the other prophets prophesied of the coming of the Christ darkly in visions in the far future. John prophesied about Jesus coming and saw him in the flesh. By affirming John's character and message, Jesus is actually affirming his own identity. Do you see that as he he points to the people saying, John is steadfast, John, you know, uh, was unflinching in his preaching, and John preached that Jesus himself was the Christ. And then, just as it does now, the identity and the work of Christ has a winnowing effect. It divides people. Look at verses 29 and 30. When the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. From the crowd's expectations of John, we can learn. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Um, (laughs) Jesus says, In the preaching of John, you've seen that I am, 
in fact, the Christ, and that divides people then just as it does now. Jesus is not a historical figure or a spiritual teacher. That was not John's message, that there would be another great spiritual teacher, but he pointed out that this, in fact, was the long-awaited Messiah. And from the crowd's expectations and response to John's preaching, we can learn about the great blessings that we have in the New Covenant times from that enigmatic statement in verse 28. Look at it. Jesus says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Some, uh, Some of your Bibles might say there is none greater than John the Baptist. If you're reading New King James like this, it may say there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Um, Different uh, textual variants there, but it's a strange statement. It's a striking statement. What, What can it possibly mean that the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist? Well, remember that despite his exalted position as the final Old Testament prophet, in a very real sense, John is an Old Testament prophet. He stood at the very edge of the coming of the kingdom of the Christ, and he saw it more clearly than any other Old Testament prophet. But as we just saw a moment ago, even in this point, he still found himself, as Peter describes the Old Testament saints in his epistle, searching and inquiring carefully what person or time the Spirit of Christ had been indicating. John was not able to know Christ as a crucified and risen Savior. John was not able to experience and to know the very outpouring of the Spirit that he himself prophesied. You see that in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, where Jesus pours the Spirit out on the church. Every person in this room, every new covenant member, is indwelt with the promised Holy Spirit and lives under the inauguration of the ascended the kingdom of the ascended Christ. That's the meaning of the baptisms that we saw earlier today. Is the promise that Jesus would indwell us by his spirit and be with us in a very particular and a new way that even John himself, as exalted and important as he was in human history, could not experience. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this passage, says this, quote, We little know how many blessed truths of the gospel were at one time seen through a glass darkly, which now appear to us plain as noonday. Our very familiarity with the gospel makes us blind to the extent of our privileges. End quote. We live in a time of great spiritual light, great blessing. The baptisms that that you have experienced and And kids, that you experience today point to that, that Jesus lives in us by his Spirit, and that God has gifted us all with spiritual gifts for the building up of the body, that we understand the gospel in a way that John could look forward to, but that we can look back on with much greater clarity. And so I want to exhort us all today to not let those privileges that we have as New Covenant members Uh, become boring and old hat, but to lean into the gifts that God has given you in your baptism, in your membership, by the Holy Spirit, to build one another up, to build up the church, 
and to rejoice in what we have. This brings us finally to the Pharisees' expectation of the kingdom. Now the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they did not go out and respond to John's preaching. They did not confess their sins publicly and were baptized. That, that would have been far too humiliating for them. Think about what that would require for the Pharisees, for them to associate with all these tax collectors and sinners who are responding to John's message. Instead, it says in verse 30 in this very chilling phrase that they rejected the will of God for themselves. And so Jesus turns to the crowd in verse 31 and says, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not weep. He compares the Pharisees uh, there to a group of children who are always changing the game that they want to play mid-course just out of spite. Okay, they, don't want to play, they don't want to play funerals because they want to play something happy. We want, to, we want to play something happy. And then so the game is switched to weddings. And they said, oh, well, we don't want to play weddings. That's, um, we, w- we want to do something sad. Okay, you, you have all experienced this uh, with kids where they are far, far too tired to do chores and also don't want to take a nap. All right, so it doesn't matter which option you're giving them, there's always some sort of excuse. And you begin to think to yourself, I think it's something else going on here. That's what Jesus is comparing the Pharisees to. John was the funeral. He was far too ascetic. You know, they said, John, um, John is crazy. He's homeless. He eats bugs and he lives by the river and he preaches doom and gloom. His life is far too hard. God wants us to enjoy all, all of his good blessings. Don't go out to John. John has a demon. And then Jesus came and they said, Jesus is far too free with the food and the wine. Jesus doesn't take holiness seriously enough. So as you look at the Pharisees here, what is it they are actually objecting to? Look down and see if you can see what are they actually objecting to. The salvation of sinners by grace. Look at verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What do Jesus and John have in common? John was a hard man. He was an ascetic. His life was difficult. He preached repentance. And yet, the sinners came. The tax collectors came. The centurions came. The outcasts came. They responded to John's preaching. Jesus came eating and drinking and proclaiming joy and good news and happiness in what happened then. The sinners came. The tax collectors came, the centurions came, the outcasts came. They ate and they drank with joy. What they have in common is that tax collectors and sinners were coming to God and receiving grace. What the Pharisees really disliked was not so much God's ministers, who he put forward, but God himself. 
because they did not expect the kingdom to be given by grace. But just as Jesus says, wisdom is justified by all of her children. The cross of Christ displays the deep wisdom of God and that through it, God can display his righteousness and his justice by saving sinners through grace. How can God do that? Display his righteousness by overlooking sin, by forgiving sin, by bringing the outcasts to himself. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Friends, we need to be aware because there lurks in each of our hearts the residual Pharisee. It's that part of you that knows, yes, God is gracious, God is forgiving, but surely there are limits. Do you have a class of people that are simply beyond the pale? Is it the angry in unwashed masses? Or perhaps for you, it's the same group as the Pharisees in Jesus' day, the statists and the sexually immoral. Let us not forget that God delights in the salvation of sinners, in tax collectors, in prostitutes, in the undesirables, in the lepers. You may be here and you've never given yourself over to Christ or to his church because you're like the Pharisees. It's always too hot or too cold. The music is too modern or too traditional. The preaching is not that good. Or maybe it's better to wait until the new year and turn over a new leaf then. What's going on? Really, you're tripped up by that word, grace. You keep waiting and hoping that one day, God and everyone will realize just how great you are because of your upbringing or your good deeds, or all the hardships that you've suffered in life, and surely God and everyone else should recognize this and welcome you. No, friends, none of us deserve the kingdom, as we might have expected, but it is open to everyone by grace. Jesus still eats with tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees who repent and come to him. Advent is a season of expectation. We're looking forward to the coming of Christ again, and we're looking back to his first incarnation as coming in human history. Let's remember that, that Jesus will always upset our expectations. But if you know Christ, and you still have questions, and you're not sure when all of this will be fulfilled, when it will work out, go to him. Lay out your prayers to him. Plead his promises to you. Do it faithfully. Do it without accusation. Do it like John. But if you have not come to Christ, you should know that Jesus 
has come into human history to die on the cross for your sins, to rise from the dead, to welcome sinners to himself. And he is coming back. The judgment that John prophesied will happen. There really will be fire. There really will be a winnowing. The axe is at the root of the trees. So if you have not given yourself to Christ, know that he will return again, and we look forward to that, and you should give yourself to him today. He invites us all to come and eat and drink in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, into human history and the forgiveness of our sins and the joy of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would impress those truths upon our hearts and in our lives, that we would look forward to that day uh, with joy, that we would mourn in the times that we ought to mourn for our sin, that we would rejoice in the salvation that you've given us, and that we would seek to invite others to know you through your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.